Volume One, Chapter One of Celestina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Celestina by Charlotte Turner Smith. Volume One, Chapter One. Mrs. Willoughby was, at the age of thirty, left a widow, with a son and a daughter, of whom she was extremely fond, and to whose education she entirely devoted herself. George Willoughby, her son, had been placed at Eton by his father, but attended by a private tutor, a man of sense and learning, who was distantly related to their family. When he was about thirteen, a fever, from which he narrowly escaped, so injured his constitution that his mother was directed by his physicians to take him to the south of Europe. Thither she and her daughter, with Mr. Everett, accompanied him. A few months completely restored his health, and they then went all together to Geneva, where, after a short residence, she left her son to pursue his studies under the care of Mr. Everard, and with her daughter, Matilda, then near eight years old, she fixed herself for some time at Heres, on the coast of Provence, a town whose beauty she had been much struck for four or five years before, when, to divert her concern for the loss of her husband, she had made a tour of some months through France and Italy. Matilda was placed in a convent for the purposes of instruction, and there she became the playfellow of a little girl almost three years younger, who was known among the nuns by the name of La Petite Celestine. The fondness which soon subsisted between her and Matilda introduced her, of course, to Mrs. Willoughby, who was at first sight charmed with her beauty, and after a few interviews, so delighted with her infantine caresses, that she became as anxious to see her every day as she was to see her own child. Her countenance, with that blooming delicacy with the French distinguish, by calling it le vrai teint anglais, had all that animation which is more usually found among the natives of the south of Europe. Yet this spirited expression often melted into softness, so insinuating that it was difficult to say whether pensive tenderness or sparkling vivacity was the most predominant, or whether it was the loveliness of her little form and face, or the enchantment of her manners, which made her so very attractive, that the very servants who saw her with Matilda became so fond of her as never to carry her back to the convent, after a visit to their lady, but with reluctance and regret. The nuns, however, with whom she lived, seemed, either from seeing her constantly, or for want of taste, to be quite insensible of perfections which won every other heart. They treated her sometimes with harshness, and always with indifference, 
so that to be with Miss Willoughby soon became the greatest happiness that little Celestina could enjoy. Mrs. Willoughby found an equal pleasure in returning her affection, and was sometimes moved even to tears when happening to caress Matilda. The other amiable child would approach as if to share her tenderness, take her hand, look innocently in her face, and say with a sigh, Alas, que n'ai-je aussi une madame? These artless expressions, and the coldness with which the sisterhood treated their infant pensioner, raised in Mrs. Willoughby a great desire to know to whom the child belonged. But every attempt to gain information was at first repressed by so much reserve that she almost despaired of being gratified. At length, however, she received a hint that by the skilful application of means equally potent in courts or convents she might learn all the nuns knew and in consequence of pursuing this hint she was informed that the last superior of the house who had been dead two years had received celestina into it when only a few months old as a child's whose birth it was of the utmost consequence to conceal that only the superior herself and her confessor who was also dead had ever known to whom she belonged every trace of which secret had by them been so carefully obliterated that after the decease of both every attempt at discovery had been ineffectual it was believed that a considerable sum of money had been received as the price of secrecy and that as a provision for the child but it had never been carried to account or any part of it appropriated to the use of the community in general who now consequently murmured at the necessity they were under as they said par charity et pour l'amour de dieu to support la petite celestine for life but they added that as soon as she was old enough to take the vows she must become a nun and fill one of the inferior offices of the convent since she had no friends or money to pay for being on a higher footing the piety excited by this account added to the sensibility with which infant as she was she felt her own situation her tender attachment to her benefactress and to matilda the sense of sweetness visible in all she said and did procured for her in the tender and generous heart of mrs willoughby an interest little short of what she felt for matilda herself every hour increased this interest till after a stay of eighteen months at Heary's, during which she had seen her almost every day she found in reflecting on her departure that she should be really unhappy the rest of her life if she returned to england and left this amiable child to a fate of so melancholy in itself and so unworthy of the promise of perfection given her infancy 
having once entertained the idea of taking her to england it soon became too pleasing to be relinquished there were however great difficulties in the way though the community complained of celestina as a burden to them they made as they declared a point of conscience not to part with her to a heretic and the more solicitous mrs willoughby became the more they declaimed against the sin it would be to hazard the soul of la petite Calestine for the sake of any worldly advantage while the matter was yet in debate george willoughby and mr everard who had been sent for the whole family might return to england together arrived and the latter finding how much mrs willoughby desired to become the sole protectress of the little orphan prevailed with father angelo the present confessor to remove at once all the scruples that had been instrumental in raising in a word mr everard used the argument to which monks in despite of their professions of poverty are not more insensible than the rest of mankind and mrs willoughby having left a certificate of her having taken celestina out of the convent a promise to educate her without influencing her to change her religion and to provide for her together with a direction which she might in case of inquiry be found was permitted to carry with her from Heries the lovely little french girl who was from that hour put on an equal footing with her own daughter and whom she seemed as tenderly to love after an absence of between three and four years mrs willoughby and her family returned to england where to all her friends who were generally struck with the beauty and elegance of her adopted child she related without reserve the little history of their accidental attachment george willoughby now in his seventeenth year was sent to cambridge his tutor retiring to a small living which had fallen near his estate in the west of england since his absence and to which his mother as patroness of in his minority had presented this excellent and amiable man mrs willoughby usually passed the winters in london where masters of music drawing dancing and languages attended her two girls for she equally termed matilda and her little friend their summers were divided between public places and allstone or alvinstone as it was spelt an estate between sidmouth and exeter of which her husband had been so fond that he had hurt his fortune by the large sums he had expended on its improvement this attachment george seemed to inherit and in compliment to him his mother always passed the vacations there willoughby himself having no pleasure so great as in talking and thinking of the happiness he should enjoy when he should become master of elstone and see his mother and sister of whom he was extremely fond settled there with him for the greatest part of every year 
Mrs. Willoughby, whose love for him might have been said to border on weakness, if it had been possible to discover any excess in the attachment of a mother to a son so uncommonly deserving, had always encouraged the inclination he had from his infancy betrayed for this his paternal seat, though his little projects often gave her pain, for she knew what she had with more tenderness than prudence studiously concealed from him, that his father's affairs were at his death so much embarrassed as to render it doubtful whether a minority of near thirteen years would so far clear his estates as to enable him at the end of that period to reside in this favorite place with the splendor and hospitality for which his ancestors had for centuries been eminent the last mr willoughby had indeed continued the same line of conduct in the country but his manner of living in town had been quite unlike that of his prudent and plainer ancestors who had but just recovered his estate when it was transmitted to him from the injuries it had received by their adherence to charles i during whose unfortunate reign they had sold some part of their extensive possessions and had been plundered of more his grandfather and great-grandfather had nearly retrieved the whole of the estate round alverstone where they piqued themselves on losing none of the family consequence but the manners of the times in which he lived and a disposition extremely gay and volatile had led the last processor into expenses which if they did not oblige him to sell had obliged him to mortgage great part of this as well as all his other estates and being charged at his death with twelve hundred a year to his widow and the interest of ten thousand pounds given to his daughter they slowly and with difficulty produced under the management of very careful executors little more than sufficient to pay such charges and the interest of the money for which they were mortgaged mrs willoughby however was unwilling to interrupt the felicity of her son's happiest hours by representing to him a dreary prospect of the future especially as she thought that future might as it advanced become brighter and that it was possible all his gay visions might be realized he had a great-uncle far advanced in life and very rich who thought the late mr willoughby had disobliged him might she thought through mere family pride give to the son what he had often declared the father should never possess her brother lord castlenorth was the last male of his illustrious race he had only a daughter and an increase of his family becoming every day more improbable he had concerted with his sister even while george who was younger than his daughter 
was yet a child, how the family might be restored by a union of its two remaining branches. The good sense of Mrs. Willoughby had not entirely saved her from family pride, and this project, which the situation of her son's fortune rendered doubly desirable, had by degrees taken such possession of her mind nothing would have made her more unhappy than suspecting it might not take effect. After her return with her family from France, she had an interview with her brother, Lord Castlenorth, who was then in England, though his health occasioned him for the most part to reside abroad, and it was then agreed with him, or rather with Lady Castlenorth, whose will was his law, that if the young people liked each other, of which they hardly suffered themselves to doubt, the match should take place as soon as young Willoughby became of age, who was then to assume the name of Fitzhaman, and in whose favour, when united with the sole heiress of the family, there was little doubt of procuring the succession to the title. Willoughby, who was yet ignorant of this proposed arrangement, had accompanied his mother in her visit, but far from feeling any partiality for his cousin, he had hardly taken any notice of her, and had passed all those hours when common civility did not oblige him to attend the family, in wandering with his tutor over the extensive domain belonging to his lordship's magnificent seat. He seemed indeed much more sensible of the charms of Castle North, which was the name of his uncle's house, from whence the title was derived, than pleased with either its present or its future possessor. Mr. Everard, who anxiously watched every emotion of his mind, saw this, and he saw, too, that his pupil was of a temper which would ill bear to be dictated to in a point so nearly connected with his own happiness. He prevailed, therefore, with some difficulty on Mrs. Willoughby not to explain her views till nearer the period when she meant they should be perfected, and they left Castle North without Willoughby's having the smallest suspicion of them or carrying away any other idea of his cousin than that she was tall, fat, formal, brown girl, whom he soon forgot and never desired to remember. His uncle's complaints and quack medicines, his long lectures on genealogy and heraldry, had tired him, and Lady Castlenorth's dictatorial manners offended and disgusted him. He told Mr. Everard that the only hour in which he had felt any pleasure during his abode at their house was that in which his mother fixed the time of departing for their own. Thither he returned with redoubted delight, after the restraint he had felt himself under at Castle North, for they lay all his plans of future felicity and there were matilda and celestina his two sisters as he always called them who
who seemed equally dear to him. In a few months he went to Cambridge, and Mr. Everard, who afterwards saw him only for a few days in the year, had no longer the same opportunities of judging of his sentiments. He still, however, had interest enough with Mrs. Willoughby to prevail on her to delay any intimation of the intended alliance. Lord Castlenorth, his lady and daughter, were now in Italy, and were to remain there till within six months of the time fixed among themselves for the marriage of the latter, but above a twelvemonth before the arrival of the former period, Mr. Everard died. Mrs. Willoughby and her family lost in him the sincerest friend and most capable monitor, a loss which greatly affected Willoughby, as well as his mother, who sent for her son from Cambridge on that melancholy occasion. Thither he had hardly returned before the uncle of his father, on whom he had great dependence, and who had not long before taken him into his favour and promised to make him his heir, died without having altered his will, and endowed a hospital with the estate which he had really meant to give his nephew, had not death overtaken him before he could conquer his habitual indolence, aggravated by the feebleness and imbecility of eighty-seven. This disappointment was severely felt by Mrs. Willoughby, who apprehended that not only the immediate but the contingent interest of her son might be deeply affected by it. She doubted whether it would not change the intentions of her brother in his favour, but after some weeks of uneasy suspense she received assurances from Italy that those his intentions and wishes were still the same. Mrs. Willoughby, though, reassured in this respect, was still in very low spirits, and felt every hour with the increasing severity the loss she had sustained in such a friend as Mr. Everard, whom she lamented indeed publicly, but still more bitterly in private. Her constitution, naturally very delicate, began to decline under the sorrow which oppressed her. Matilda, then about sixteen, was the only person about her who seemed insensible of the alteration which now made a slow but very evident progress. In her looks and manner, her countenance was still pleasing and interesting, but very languid. Her eyes had lost their fire, and she grew very thin. Her amiable manners remained, but all her vivacity in conversation was fled. She no longer enjoyed society of which she had been so fond, but she still went into company, because Matilda, now of an age to enter into all the gaieties of high life, did indeed engage in them with an avidity which her mother was too indulgent to repeat press, though she could not approve it. Sometimes, however, she suffered so much from crowded rooms and late hours that, though she did not even then complain, her physicians insisted on her forbearing 
so continually to hazard her health matilda was so very uneasy if long kept from company was then put under the care of some of her mother's friends and the task of attending on her beloved benefactress fell entirely to the lot of celestina who was never so happy as when employed in it and who now having just completed her fourteenth year surpassed in the perfections both of person and mind all that mrs willoughby partial as she had always been to her had ever supposed she would attain above two years passed away willoughby pursuing very regularly his studies at cambridge matilda pursuing as regularly every amusement that offered itself and celestina careless of all that has usually attractions for youth devoting her whole time and thoughts to mrs willoughby who without saying anything of what she felt to be inevitable was gradually sinking into the grave this conviction made her determined to disclose to her son when she next saw him her purpose in regard to miss fitz Heyman. but it was a resolution she could not bring herself to make without infinite regret for in giving her reasons for wishing this alliance it was necessary for her to open to him the real state of his fortune of which her tenderness in this instance perhaps injustice had hitherto kept him in ignorance the longer this affectionate mother thought of the pain she should thus inflict on her son the less she found herself able to undertake it she therefore determined that mr dawson who had been employed many years by his father as steward and manager of the estates should under pretence of consulting him on his affairs now that he was of an age to direct in them disclose to him their real situation for this purpose he went to cambridge and there this unpleasant explanation was made to willoughby who learned that his father towards the latter end of his life had mortgaged above a third of his property for nearly its value that what remained was not only encumbered by heavy debts which were to be discharged out of it but had a charge of twelve hundred a year his mother's jointure and was to pay his sister ten thousand pounds with interest till she married burthens which so diminished the income as to make it impossible to save anything during his minority and left him no prospect of ever enjoying his paternal estate unembarrassed but by an opulent marriage though mr dawson had with as much caution and tenderness as possible opened to willoughby the real condition of his affairs the young man of warm passions and keen feelings could not hear such a mortifying account but with the extremest pain and humiliation unable to remain tranquilly at cambridge he immediately set out for london and asked of his mother a farther explanation as if unwilling to receive from any hand but hers a blow so cruel 
which seemed to destroy for ever all his favorite hopes mrs willoughby had ever been so far from suspecting that her son loved money that a tendency to carelessness in that respect had sometimes alarmed her she was therefore extremely surprised at the eagerness of his inquiries and the evident anxiety and concern he expressed at his disappointment but having convinced him that all he had heard was but true and recovered from the agitation into which the necessity of giving him so much pain had thrown her she seized the opportunity while his mind seemed to turn with uneasy solicitude towards means of redeeming his patronomy to suggest to him the plan she had so long considered as infallible my dear george said she there is one way but which all this may be repaired and your estate devolving to you from a long line of ancestors of whom any man might be proud may not only be repaired but increased by an alliance of which an ambitious man may still be prouder my brother lord castlenorth is the last male of a line distinguished since the conquest your cousin his only daughter will inherit his fortune the titles die with him it is equally natural therefore for him and for me to wish that you my son in becoming the husband of my niece may possess the estates and honors of my family which on such a union would be easily obtained and that in you may be revived or rather perpetuated the family of fitzhaman i did not intend to have named this to you till your farther acquaintance with your cousin who returns to england in the course of the next summer should have made it on your part a measure of inclination for from all the accounts i have had of her she is very amiable and highly accomplished but my uncertain health and the near approach of that period when you become master of yourself have at length determined me to tell you my thoughts in the matter on which the prosperity of your future life depends i need not say george that seeing it in that light there is nothing in this world so near my heart as its completion willoughby whose mind was contending with the various emotions this discourse of his mother's had raised remained silent and confused he changed color he sighed as to throw off the unexpected pressure on his heart and mrs willoughby who saw with concern that he entered not into the project with the alacrity she had expected began again to describe to him not only the numerous advantages which must follow the marriage but to repeat all she had heard and more that she had imagined of the perfections of miss fitzhaman willoughby however appeared rather to be musing than attending to almost the only conversation from his mother that he had ever thought tedious 
when she seemed to have exhausted the subject he still paused a moment then taking his hand from his forehead he asked his mother whether she thought miss fitzhaman as lovely as celestina as lovely as celestina replied mrs willoughby in great and apparent painful surprise how comes celestina to occur to you nay answered her son attempting to appear indifferent i know not how unless because she is the prettiest young woman i have lately seen sure you do not think of celestina reassumed mrs willoughby with increased emotion surely you are not imprudent enough to entertain an idea of her otherwise than as a sister there are objections insuperable objections for god's sake george let me be assured that you will never again think of her dear madam returned willoughby with some quickness that is really more than i can promise how is it possible for me to assure you with any hope of my being able to keep my word that i will not think of a beautiful and interesting object which whenever i am with you is continually before my eyes well then said his mother with yet more chagrin since it is so you will compel me to remove her where surely cried the young man eagerly interrupting her that would be very cruel very cruel as it would affect celestina and very unnecessary as it relates to me for i shall now be very seldom at home and i can without any danger of breaking my word assure you that nothing will ever make your son forget the duty he owes you or hazard giving you pain i am very sorry i named celestina since you seem so easy at it think of it more i beseech you and continue to love as you used to do my adopted sister or i shall never forgive myself for my inadvertence willoughby then without staying to talk over further the proposed alliance with miss fitzhaman hurried away and that he might avoid all farther conversation with his mother he stayed out to supper that night and immediately after breakfast the following morning returned to cambridge telling her as he took leave that it would be time enough to talk over the business she had opened to him when the parties to whom it related were in england but that she might assure herself that her happiness was always nearer his heart than his own this was the first time in his life that the parted from matilda and celestina without saluting them both when breakfast was over and he had taken leave of his mother he kissed his sister as usual and was approaching celestina who already held out her hand to him when catching his mother's eye who seemed to look at him reproachingly he blushed and only bowing and wishing celestina her health till he saw her again he hastened to the door and without venturing even to look at her she followed him thither 
with his mother and sister he mounted his horse and disappeared hurt cruelly at this behavior which from the very different judgment she had formed of it had yet more alarmed his mother celestina could not repress the tears which she felt rising to her eyes mrs willoughby stood at the door till her son turned into another street and was then going to her own room when celestina from an emotion she could not command caught her hand and burst into tears and for the first time in her life her benefactress instead of soothing her received her mournful caresses with repulsive coldness and almost without speaking to her left her matilda was as usual engaged to a morning concert and had neither time nor inclination to attend to the concern of celestina or the displeasure of her mother which indeed she either did not see or seeing reflect upon poor celestina therefore who never suspected the real source of willoughby's affected coldness nor could imagine why his mother who always found pleasure and comfort in her company should now fly from her concluded she had offended them both and passed the morning in tears at dinner however mrs willoughby as if conscious of her injustice behaved to her with even more than her accustomed tenderness after they had dined as matilda was still out their reading went on as usual mrs willoughby took no notice of the swollen eyes and half-snuffled snobs which still agitated the general bosom of her young friend but without naming the cause she seemed solicitous to remove every remaining uneasiness and by her easy and affectionate manner celestina became convinced that concern for her son's departure and not anger towards her had occasioned the coldness which had so much alarmed her and her soft heart was thus restored to tranquillity end of volume one chapter one recording by linda marie nielsen vancouver bc